Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast covering documentary film. I'm your host, Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and for the New York screening series, Stranger Than Fiction at IFC Center. My guest this episode is John Heilman, the veteran political reporter who is one of three creators of the new Showtime documentary, Trumped, Inside the Greatest Political Upset of All Time. He talks about what it means to cover politicians up close. The stuff that people dismiss as personality coverage, you know, that's, you could also call that character coverage. Mm. And, and in the end, you know, I think you could have a reasonably good, thorough argument about what matters more in a president's performance, mm. what his issue paper is on, on some particular uh, matter of policy, healthcare policy or uh, veterans affairs or whatever. Or whether, or what we know about them, and what we see, learn about them in the course of the campaign, about how they will behave in certain circumstances, like that character stuff matters at least as much, if not more, to what they're going to turn out to be like as president of the United States. Heilman studied journalism at Northwestern and was a longtime columnist for New York Magazine. In 2008, he teamed up with Time Magazine correspondent Mark Halperin to write the book Game Change, going inside the political campaigns that led to the contest between Barack Obama and John McCain. The book was a big success and adapted into an HBO drama. It led to another book, Double Down, about the 2012 election. When the primary season for 2016 was getting underway, it was natural that Heilman and Halperin would team up again. By then, they had both shifted from print to television, anchoring the Bloomberg TV show With All Due Respect. They partnered with political strategist Mark McKinnon for an idea to create a weekly documentary series for Showtime called The Circus. It would cover the Democratic and Republican campaigns more or less in real time. In 26 episodes, they tracked candidates from the Iowa caucuses all the way to election night in November. Throughout the shows, Heilman, Halperin, and McKinnon interject their perspectives. I thought that Donald Trump had a couple of days this week that were really good. Yeah. I mean, if he'd done more of that over We've the- said this now for a year. Oh, Donald Trump had these two days where he didn't make a, where he didn't trip over his own dick. I think she's gonna win. I don't think there's, I have very little doubt. Very little doubt. Watching the episodes in hindsight, seeing so many incidents with Donald Trump that would have ended the careers of other politicians, it feels even more unreal that he became president. To freshly deconstruct what happened, the circus team went back into their footage to craft the new documentary, Trumped, tracing his entire campaign. The film is now available on Showtime. Like so many pundits, Heilman was predicting a win for Hillary Clinton in the week before the election. Here's a scene from Trumped on election night when he realizes that won't be the case. I'm gonna go on TV tomorrow and have to say, hey man, I was wrong. I got to figure out why I was wrong. We all got to figure it out. This was the year of bipartisan, ecumenical, populist rage. And it was enough that the figure of Donald Trump was able to marshal that populist outrage and engineer a hostile takeover of the Republican Party on the back of widespread outrage and anger at Democrats, at Republicans, at Washington, at Wall Street, at the Fortune 500, at the mass media, at every major establishment institution in the country. People are 
pissed off. And their attitude was, you know what? That guy is risky, but doing the same thing over and over again for another 20 years that we did for the last 20 years didn't fix anything, that's risky too. And I'm willing to take these risks and just roll a fucking stick of dynamite into Washington, D.C. and blow the motherfucker up and see where the rubble falls. The film had its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival, and later that day, John Heilman sat down with me to talk about it. Let's go. I want to start with Northwestern. I'm curious, when you were studying journalism, who were your heroes? What were you thinking your career was going to be? Well, I didn't, first to say, I knew that I was going to be a journalist from the time I was about 11 years old. And and I have always had some envy for people who go to college and you know, they're like, um, they do biology for a while and then they're pre-law and they're kind of feeling their way around. I never had that. I liked writing and I thought I was decent at it. And I thought it was the only real skill that I had and it was the only thing I was interested in doing. So I didn't know exactly what I was going to cover. I thought I was very interested in politics and I was really interested in culture. And so when I came out of college, I was, I could have easily been a film critic or someone who wrote for, you know, Rolling Stone or or I could Since have been those a, jobs still existed then. Yes, yeah, yeah. Or I could have, yes, right. Or I could have been, or I would have covered politics. And it turned out that politics ended up being, I kind of made this decision where I thought that politics should be my vocation and, and culture should be my avocation. Um, I loved, uh, you know, I, for a long time was, a, and still consider myself in some way, although I haven't done it for a couple of years since uh, this, in this election cycle, but I was a mostly a narrative nonfiction person, right? So I wrote, I was a magazine journalist for 25 years before, sort of setting that aside for the last two years when we were doing the Bloomberg MSNBC Showtime combination. And um, so most of my heroes in journalism were people like that. So I was a huge fan of Hunter Thompson. I was a huge fan of Tom Wolfe. I was a huge fan of one of my professors in Northwestern was a guy named Gary Wills, famous now famous historian who also did a lot of new journalism at the time. But that golden age of experimental, you know, Gates Lee's Norman Mailer, people who were doing that kind of stuff in the 60s and 70s, um, it's weird. I was in college, 1983 to 1987, and they, that stuff seemed distant to me then, although now I realize in, that actually it was like yesterday. Um, but I was really influenced by those people who were trying to do ambitious, uh, long-form narrative that was that borrowed from a lot of the techniques of fiction and tried to paint big pictures with words and go really deep on stories. And, um, and you know, it's part of the reason why that, that kind of informed the way that I thought about uh, my career, being much more interested in magazines than newspapers. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, it's informed the way I've thought about the three books that I've written. So um, that, they're still my heroes now. When you're going to school thinking about long-form journalism, could you ever imagine yourself being a TV personality? Was there more of a difference back then than there is today? Yeah, I think there was a lot more, um, there was a lot more demarcation, you know, and print people really thought of themselves as print people and TV people thought of themselves as TV people. I did, I think, one broadcast journalism course at Northwestern, and I really actually liked it because the challenge of writing to pictures is a, just a different kind of challenge of, you know, of, of what you're doing with your pen. And I thought it was interesting. I certainly never thought of myself as on-screen talent. I didn't, wasn't, didn't really contemplate that. And to be honest, one of the things that, you know, that's happened in our journalistic culture in the last, you know, couple decades, right, is the the rise of cable news. And with the rise of cable news and uh, the extent to which it tends to focus on politics, the notion of political analysts. So, you know, there's obviously it's now a convention that um, places like MSNBC and CNN and Fox reach out to journalists who were not broadcast journalists or television personalities to come on TV and talk about the stuff they cover. And so I started, and I'd been doing TV in sporadic ways pretty much from the beginning of my career as just a guest on things when people would ask me to come on. If I 
kill myself to write some big, long Barack Obama profile or Sarah Palin profile, I would like for the maximum number of people to read the thing that I did that I'm proud of. And if that means going on television or to make sure that people know about it in New York Magazine or at some other place, I'm happy to go do that. And as you once you start head, you head down that path, if you have any facility for bullshit, which is to say, you know, the ability to kind of talk about um, a lot of different topics extemporaneously on TV, people quickly think, oh, you know, maybe we should have you back. <laughs> and I wonder, is there a different energy there? I think about when I when I watch you on the circus or when I watch you in this movie, Trumped, it feels like, you know, nonstop connected to uh, your Blackberry or iPhone, uh, you know, checking what's breaking news that second on Twitter, going on a TV show and talking about it, reacting to it fast. And I wonder how that energy compares to when you're writing, say, a weekly column, which feels to me like more reflective, you know, closing the door, thinking about what just happened in the week and taking time to process it more. Yeah. I mean, they're obviously different. And you know, in the context of this election cycle, you know, Mark Halperin and I, when we signed up to go to Bloomberg, we took on basically running political coverage for Bloomberg and creating this thing called Bloomberg Politics. There was going to be a daily television show called With All Due Respect. And then we had a team of web reporters and, and we were in the mix as not exactly as managers, but as kind of leaders of Bloomberg's editorial approach to politics in this cycle. And so, you know, that... Uh, I'm always a news junkie, right? But being involved in that really ambitious enterprise, in addition to just the actual responsibilities of being on television every day, talking about the news with the Daily Show, with all due respect, and then with the circus, in a campaign, everybody's a news junkie, right? And But there's no doubt that having to do snap analysis is a different metabolism than the slightly more reflective thing. In writing now, though, nobody really has as much time to reflect. If you're doing a book, you have more time. But even when I was in New York Magazine and I did uh, a weekly column or a bi-weekly column, depending on how much was going on, even then, once the web became the central nervous system for political journalism, there was immediately like, well, you know, you should do some snap posts, right? If something happens, people don't want to wait until Friday to read your take on the Access Hollywood tape and Donald Trump. They want to know what you think about it right now. And so... Well, you can write a more considered column about it five days from now and go do some reporting and do some thinking, but let's get a number of different cuts from you on this. We want your, you know, on TV, an hour from when the story breaks. We want the overnight 600 word blog post or, you know, news post, analysis post. And then, you know, if you want to build that into a bigger thing, that's a column a week later, and then maybe a feature that's going to come out six weeks later. Those are all, you know, the, 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 the appetite for, for clicks and for traffic and being part of the news flow is such now that almost everybody in the business is sort of required to be short form, medium form, and long form all at once, you know? And I recognize that's just how it is now. And it'd probably be difficult to have a career without, maybe Gary Will still has a career without uh, doing that. But I wonder, you know, what you think it, it does to our news consumption culture? Well, I think, I think that there's no question that for uh, reporters, many of them pine for the day when they didn't have to file constantly. And, you know, if you're at the Washington Post or the New York Times, even if you were never a long form writer or never did anything, you were basically doing dailies, right? Now you don't even do dailies. You have to do the 10 a.m. post, the 2 p.m. update, and then the 5 p.m. story that's going to be in the newspaper the following morning, right? I think everyone wishes that that wasn't so, not in terms of news consumption, but in terms of news production, right? Because 
if you're constantly having to update stories like that, it just means every minute you're doing that means it's another minute you're not on the phone or another minute you're not doing an interview or trying to learn more about the thing that you're reporting on. And I think inevitably having to feed that beast means that there's a certain sacrifice in the kind of rigor and in-depth focus that you're able to bring to a story. I think for people in the world, I, I I find it hard to evaluate as good or bad. It's sort of like, it is now the physics of our world, right? And for people who are news junkies, they they want the information fast, right? But I do think that what's really interesting about it is that because news is now commodified, because you now have a world where if I really want to know what's going on in a heartbeat, like as it happens, I can find out the basic facts really quickly through a million different sources, right? So if that's true, and I think the, our business is only now coming to really understand this, is that if it's true that that basic news and basic data is commodified, then the value that we have to add is going deeper, providing more context, being more explanatory, being more analytical, you know, getting adding some value beyond just, you know, Joe said this or this happened to Fred, you know. And now grappling with the alternate facts. Yes, well that's a, and then there's that whole other <laughs> that's this whole challenge, right? But I do think, you know, that I think it's I think that it will be a, a, it's a difficult transformation that's happening in our business. But when you think about where the value add is, increasingly the value add is going to have to be in depth and context and, and, and making sense of things as opposed to just being fast. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think it will take a while for the business to get there because in truth, because people's expectations are so much that they get everything quickly, we're still in that competitive mindset of like really wanting to be first. Right. And that's not a bad thing, but there's a bigger there's a bigger set of issues to be confronted there. Now, the circus, uh, when you were introducing the film today at Sundance, uh, you described it as you guys brought this idea to Showtime. Yeah. So who's who, who was that group of people who came up with it? So there are, you know, there are three spring masters on the circus. Um, one of them is my journalistic partner. Uh, who I wrote both Game Change and Double Down with and did all this Bloomberg stuff that we've been talking about. Uh, and that's Mark Halperin, um, who was former political director at ABC News, was a Time magazine when we first teamed up to do Game Change initially in 2008, uh, and then was with me you know, doing the Bloomberg and MSNBC and Circus stuff this year. The third member of the triad is Mark McKinnon, who's a political strategist, one of the great um, ad makers and media strategists in modern political history. He was in government at the highest level, uh, working for George W. Bush and helped elect him in 2000 and 2004. But prior to that, worked on the Democratic side of the aisle in Texas, helped Ann Richards become governor of Texas. And so Mark is a kind of politically ambidextrous Hmm. uh, guy. Speak on Texas. Yes, right. He's worked on, he's worked for liberals, he's worked for conservatives, he's worked uh, across the spectrum and now is kind of resolutely independent. And the reason I focus on him so much is that this whole thing was really his idea Hmm. initially. Um, Mark, for a long time, it felt like, he had been the consumer of and part of a lot of political journalism as a source, as a subject, and 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 obviously as a reader and viewer. And he felt like no one had really captured, and I'm going to use his words here, that no one had really captured what it was like to be in the cockpit of a campaign and what it really felt like to be in this sleepless, relentlessly competitive, adrenalized environment for people who do it. And you know, it is the most all-consuming job you can imagine. Kids, a lot of kids who give, you know, months or if you are on a winning campaign, conceivably years of your life where you're in this cauldron and you're sleepless and working 7 days a week for, you know, for long stretches of time with an intense amount of camaraderie, you're like really in the foxhole to mix metaphors. But Marx 
was like, I, there's, we should be able to capture that on film or on, you know, not film, but on, you know, on, on, digital hard drive, on digital video formats and show people more of what that is. And so his original idea was to try to basically do what we did. And he uh, started talking to various potential people who might uh, be partners to make it. And he started talking to Mark and I um, because I think he felt that he had a valuable part to play, but that we, with our journalistic credibility, we'd make a really great tandem. You know, one political strategist, two pretty well-known and pretty well-respected, I'd venture to say, political journalists, that if we teamed up, we could come at it from a bunch of different angles and that the wisdom that each one of us would impart would be slightly different and complementary. And we talked about it with a couple of uh, potential platforms who were really interested but scared of a variety of things, but particularly of the turnaround thing. I mean, we were doing this crazy thing, which was trying to essentially operate like an independent news oper- a news unit where you'd have the three of us always essentially embedded somewhere with someone on the campaign. And you'd have a crew with each one of us and sometimes multiple crews with each one of us. And we would shoot over the course of a week, basically shoot Monday to Saturday and then put the thing on the air on Sunday night. And the only way to get it done was to start editing in the middle of the week. So you you would start you'd have to start editing the episode before you really knew what the episode was. And you know, documentary filmmakers and television people are not comfortable with that. Like <laughs> usually like you shoot everything and then you figure out what the outline is and then you edit to the outline, right? This is more like, okay, on Monday we think the story is going to be this, so we're going to shoot this on Monday and Tuesday, but on Wednesday you got to start getting the editors in their bays in front of the avids and starting to actually shape this episode that you don't know what the ending is going to be. So a lot of people were like, that sounds like a high wire act. And it was a high wire act. But when we talked uh, in this fall of 2015 uh, to David Nevins. At Showtime. The, the head of Showtime. And fun- funnily enough, was a high school classmate of Mark Halperin's. Hmm. So we you know, called David on the phone and said, we have this really great idea. We've talked to some people about making it. They kind of chickened out. What do you think? And we sold it to him on the phone. David was like immediately like, this sounds great. Uh, I totally get that it's going to be risky and, and kind of crazy, but this sounds fantastic. And if we could pull it off, it'll be really exciting. So all props to David and Vinny Malhorta, the head of nonfiction now at of Unscripted at Showtime. They both went in hard and fast behind us. And with almost, I mean, I think we talked to them about it in maybe September. And, you know, we had to really be up and running by December. So yeah. um, everything was done on this really accelerated time schedule. And they were magnificently supportive throughout the entire thing. They imbued us with an extraordinary amount of trust, and we couldn't be more grateful. We could not have made anything like what we made without all the support that Showtime gave us. And again, they had. it took a lot of courage in a certain way because the reality is that we edited every Saturday night until 4 or 5, 6 in the morning on Sunday. And you would have to send a locked version to Showtime to get it on the air that night at 8 o'clock by you know, 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday, which meant that although they were very involved in seeing versions, in the end, the final edit decisions we were making in the middle of the night, Saturday night and early Sunday morning, you know, in the end, we were making final calls on things. And if you're running Showtime and you don't, can make you, nervous. you don't actually know what the product is, and if you didn't like it at three o'clock on Sunday afternoon, you'd have a hole at eight o'clock on Saturday, <laughs> on Sunday night, you know, but they were, you know, they trusted us and, and we think we did pretty well by them. You know, when I think about the history of these kinds of films, starting with Primary in 1960, Robert Drew's uh, film about Kennedy's Primary and The War Room. Which we actually used, you know, in the, in the circus. Oh, is that right? I, I, I missed yeah, that. The last episode of the, I didn't mean to cut you off, but just because you mentioned primary, it's a huge, you know, totem of 
uh, uh, people who care about political documentaries. And that movie was about the Wisconsin primary. That's right. Yeah. Um, in 1960. And so when we did the last episode of our primaries run of the the winter run, basically, in April, which was about the Wisconsin primary, we intercut pieces from the original movie into, oh, uh, wow. into the circus episode that's, that week is kind of an homage to that to that seminal piece of work. What a great idea. I, you know, I once interviewed uh, Richard Leacock, who was one of the principals yeah. on that film, who was in the room with Kennedy in a kind of famous scene uh, there, which was at that point, you know, as close as anyone had ever gotten to a politician right. uh, in an election. And even Ricky Leacock said, we didn't really see what was going on. Like, you know, we gave you some of the feel of what it's like to be there, but the real decision making behind the scenes, you know, you'd have to read Theodore White's uh, making of the president uh, about the 1960 campaign to to really like understand the politics uh, of it. So and in a way, you kind of want to experience both if you really want to right. uh, experience that. The, the film gives you something that you won't get in the book, and the book gives you something that you won't get in the film. Totally. And then you move to the war room by uh, D. Pennant Baker and Chris Hedges, and maybe you're getting a little bit closer to to the inside. But even the war room is made up of, you know, probably less than 100 hours of footage. Maybe, yeah. you know, they were shooting 60 millimeter. It might be 50 hours yeah. of footage. That, I mean, totally. it wasn't a yeah. lot. Yeah, they had lot. very, I mean, it's a brilliant movie and everyone loves The War Room and they should. But if you actually, I covered 92 as did Halpern and we knew that they had not that much access. They did, they, right. made, they made a brilliant film out of very little access at it, it, a couple of phases in the campaign where they had a few days. Um, but they were not like embedded for the year or anything. So it was a very... And the reason I bring those up is because with you, I think, you, you know, you turn the dial up on access to a degree. But, oh, yeah. you know, there's absolutely closed doors that you're not getting behind. And, and, and I wonder, you know, how you analyze like what comes across on film versus what's really going on in those campaigns. The thing that McKinnon, this goes loop back to your previous question, but one of McKinnon's inspirations, in addition to his general sense that he wanted to figure out a way to put people in the cockpit of the campaign, one of his uh, real inspirations was the documentary Mitt um, about Romney, yeah. which allowed you to get close enough to Romney and show a human side of him that hadn't come through in the 2012 campaign. It came out after the campaign was over. The campaign had been faced with a choice, and they had insisted in order to give the access they gave, they insisted that it not come out until after election day. Right. After the movie came out, many of the people in the campaign said, wow, we really should have, that would have been better for us if it came out during the <laughs> campaign because a lot of people who saw it, including a lot of Democrats said, wow, that's Mitt Romney. He's actually a human saw. being. He's, he's, a, he's approachable and he's interesting and he's, there's, a, there's a side to Romney we never saw. So I think, that, and the reason I answer the question that way is because I think that's the kind of thing you can do if you can get the kind of access that we uh, we're able to get on the circus and that comes through and trumped is you can get a better sense of the humanity of these people because you get them into places where they're not sitting in, you know, on a Sunday show set. It's a more relaxed, more conversational. You are able to kind of show who they are, you know, the high human drama slash comedy of, of politics, but you're not going to ever take television cameras into the rooms where fundamental campaign decisions are being made. Because the reality is, even if the thing were to be embargoed till after the election, no one, the, the introduction of the camera changes the alchemy in the room, and no one really trusts anybody enough to say, yes, please bring a camera in here and shoot our internal, most crucial decision-making meetings for the purpose of the film. It's never going to happen. No one's ever going to get that. That You can do that in a book, you know, in, in Game Change and Double Down. You can go back and reconstruct those meetings 
in painstaking detail in the way that we have uh, if you're doing it for print. On television, I think the thing you can do is you can pull back the curtains and you can show some of how like the, the mechanics of how politics works that doesn't come through on normal television coverage where you've got a camera from the riser and you're shooting straight on, where you can show some of the chaos and some of the pressure and some of the intensity. And as I said about the candidate, you can show some of their humor, some of their empathy, some of their affection, some of the stuff in the circus that's most, you see it in the, in, in the Trump movie. There's a moment, totally wordless, a moment where you see Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner on the, la the last rally of the campaign engaged in a public display of affection, this kind of like a very tender kiss that comes through. We saw that in the series with Bernie Sanders and Jane Sanders, where you'd see a shot from backstage where Jane would be picking off like a little dandruff off of his shoulder and like kind of touching him in a certain way. Those are images that you don't see on television every day. And there's verbal equivalence of that. That's what you can do, I think, with TV if you can get in tight enough. What you can't do is ever hope to like get on camera in real time, you know, the crucial decision of is Donald Trump going to drop out in the wake of the Access Hollywood tape? No one's ever going to get that. No one. We'll be back with more from John Heilman talking about Trump after the break. If you're new to Pure Nonfiction, please explore our archives of documentary film interviews. On episode nine, I talked to D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges about several of their films, including The War Room, covering Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign. Really, you know, what happened was we stumbled across James Carville, who kind of seemed like somebody's drunken uncle at a party. <laughs> we couldn't believe he was had a strategy, but, um, you know, he was, and he was brilliant. And, you know, he and George were kind of like, a, you know, a buddy team. And they seemed like, you know, great characters to follow for the film. So, you know, we hung out with them and, and essentially kind of stuck to the war room um, so that nobody could really fault us for not being with the president. We could say, oh, a lot of films about the war room. You can hear Pennebaker and Hedges on episode nine by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or go to purenonfiction.net. There's a scene in Trump from early in the campaign when Bernie Sanders was still in the race. He talks about Trump's appeal in this interview with Heilman. People in this country are hurting. People are angry. You've got husbands and wives struggling economically. They are angry and they have a reason to be angry. And what we are trying to do is say, all right, if you're angry, let's get angry at the right people. Don't get angry at your Latino friends or Muslims. Get angry at the people who caused the problem. I consider him to be a very dangerous human being who is doing enormous harm to this country. And also, as you have heard me say once or twice, um, you know, I think we need a media that allows us to focus on the real issues facing the American people rather than looking at campaigns as a sport or as a soap opera. I asked Heilman how he thinks his team's reporting balanced between the soap opera and the issues. I think that Senator Sanders is a guy who, you know, we covered him a lot. Um, in on the circus and elsewhere. If you looked at the way that we covered Bernie Sanders, where we did interviews with him uh, in both in our on our daily show and and in the circus, that were really substantive. Like you go back and look at those interviews, and we talked to him about breaking up the big banks and about the role of money in politics and about health care and about unions, and we asked a lot of those questions. 
We also put up a photograph of him with his grandson and talk to him about his family. There, there's not an either or here. People who think that the, that the mainstream media is focused too much on personality on soap opera, I think there's something to that in the sense that we should focus more on issues and we should focus like I, I, we collectively. That stuff cannot be neglected. But I don't think that that's always an either or choice. You know, one of the things that, that I strive to do and that we strive to do in this series and you know, is to be to do both. Because the reality is that the person who becomes president of the United States, a lot of the decisions they make with the awesome power they have do go back to their personality, their character. What are their strengths of character? What are their weaknesses of character? What's their temperament like? How do they react under in crisis? Um, do they lash out? Are they uh, intemperate? Or are they cool and graceful under pressure? Those things really matter to your to what you're going to be like as president of the United States. And you think matter. of anyone in particular? Well, to, all, I actually think all of them. You're, you're electing someone who in his body, in that chair, has this incredible power, right? And what they believe about what to do on domestic policy and foreign policy matters a lot. We should cover that. What they think of the role of government broadly in American life is really important. We should talk about that with them. But we also should be the, the stuff that people dismiss as personality coverage. You could also call that character coverage. Mm -hmm. And and in the end, I think you could have a reasonably good, thorough argument about what matters more in a president's performance, mm -hmm. what his issue paper is on some particular uh, matter of policy, healthcare policy or uh, veterans affairs or whatever. Or whether, or what we know about them, and what we see, learn about them in the course of the campaign, about how they will behave in certain circumstances, like that character stuff matters at least as much, if not more, to what they're going to turn out to be like as president of the United States. So there's a scene in Trump. It's two days before the election. You're on Face the Nation. The big question is who's going to win. Yeah. And you essentially say, if Trump wins, a lot of us will have to check our preconceptions. Yeah. And I wonder, here we are almost two months after that, what's the kind of reflection that you've been going through about your preconceptions and, and the way you and your colleagues covered this campaign? I think that, you know, when you're looking at a, an election like this one, which was an upset, we say in the movie's subtitles, the greatest political upset of all time, I believe that's true if you think about both the consequence of the office and how much there was a consensus. And the consensus was not just smarty pants journalists like me, but Republican strategists, Democratic strategists, Republican elected officials, Democratic elected officials, the Clinton campaign, the Trump campaign, and Donald Trump himself, who all basically thought that she was going to win on election night. And there's a reason why that was. Mostly it's because what we've all learned is that, uh, and I think this is the right, this is true. We should, we should still believe this, which is that the anecdotes shouldn't drive our coverage, right? Anecdotes matter, like telling stories matters, right? But data matters too, right? So we have all become students of data and all of the data suggested that Hillary Clinton was going to win. So I think one of the things that anybody who got this wrong, including me, should be doing is reassessing the balance in the way we think about our analysis, the balance between how much weight we put on polling data. First of all, it's starting to think in a really hard way about the ways in which polling is broken. What is polling not doing right? When when you have a situation where the national polling is basically right, but across all the battleground states, the polls were systematically wrong, not by a lot, but by a little, but consistently, right? So what's going on there? And a lot of people are doing interesting work on that subject, trying to get to the bottom of like what went wrong with the actual data models, right? That's something we should look at. As journalists, we should be thinking about, right, the rate ratio is between looking at polls versus looking at the stuff we're actually experiencing when we're out in the country. Maybe, you know, the, the, the things that we see 
we should believe our eyes as much as we believe the data on a spreadsheet. You know, the other thing is, I think in a broad sense, is that I've made my life in books and, and magazine articles and on television focused in the way that we were just discussing, focused on candidates. It's an incredibly intense competition running for president of the United States. And some of the most extraordinary humans you'll ever meet do it. You know, they are um, idealistic and narcissistic and altruistic and super hyper-confident, but also really insecure. They're, fa they're fantastically interesting people engaged in the most high-stakes competition in the world. And the idea that we would focus on them and the competitive aspect of it, because who wins really matters, seems to me right and proper. At the same time, I think it sometimes allows, we sometimes lose track of the country when we're obsessively focused on the candidates. And one of the things I think for all of us, we've talked now for 20 years about um, the rise in populist sentiment in the country on the far right and the far left, the effect of stagnant incomes and stagnant wages on the middle class and working class in America for a long time. We saw Trump engineer a hostile takeover of the Republican Party and Bernie Sanders almost beat Hillary Clinton as a left populist, right? We, 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 it's not like those were, we didn't see those things happen. And yet we still underestimated the passionate desire for fundamental change and any establishment change that Trump's victory represents. So for me, all of those things, I, I don't think that it's not a, like, we've got to go back and start from square one again. Um, but making those kind of adjustments, thinking about what right, right, the right balances are, focusing a little bit more on this and a little bit less on that. Um, I think those are all really important adjustments to take forward because we're not learning from our experiences because we're always going to get stuff wrong. You know, journalists mm -hmm. have been getting stuff wrong for a long time. Pretty much everybody in every job makes mistakes, right? So the only question is, do, what do you learn from your mistakes and how do you try to make the practice of your profession? How do you do it a little bit better next time? You interview Roger Stone and Kellyanne Conway and lots of Trump associates and, and strategists. How much do you think they made a meaningful contribution this campaign because repeatedly through the election, we hear this refrain of like, well, Trump is just going on his own. He's you know doing something that no strategist would uh, tell him to do. So were, were these people making a meaningful contribution to the Trump campaign or were they just like holding on to his coattails and following him? Um, I think that, first of all, that in any given campaign, no matter who the, the candidate is, in the end, the campaign is a reflection of the candidate, and the candidate's ultimately responsible for what goes right and what goes wrong, and responsible for the team they put together, and teams tend to reflect their bosses, and that's true both sides of the aisle for the entire time I've ever done this, right? Even George W. Bush, where we, we think of him as being a real puppet of, of, of other forces? Well, now, now, now there is the question is, who's we in this, in this discussion? Clearly, you think that. <laughs> others might not. But I think if you look at, at, at Bush's campaigns, you know, you would say something similar. But just, just to, all I'm trying to say is that I think that, the, that when you think about a candidate, the candidate ultimately is making the final decisions. And if they lose, it's their fault. And if they win, they get the credit, right? In Trump's case, he's unusually un indisciplined. Right, discipline's not Trump's thing. Whatever his strengths are, they're not about being disciplined or buttoned down or sticking to a message or, you know, all that stuff. I think trying to corral him and contain him was a huge challenge for everybody who worked in his campaign. And yet, you could point to the periods in the Trump campaign when, uh, when Trump was having good stretches or relatively good stretches and getting in less trouble and staying relatively close to on message as opposed to like getting into. Uh, distractions and diversions from his message. I think Kellyanne had a lot to do with that. You know, Roger Stone, someone who'd never worked in the Trump campaign proper, you know, he's being investigated currently by the federal government for his potential connections to Russia. If you believe, 
if you start with the stipulation, which is true on the basis of all the intelligence that we now know, that Russia both attempted to and successfully infiltrated our electoral process, to what effect is a question of great debate? Did they, how much, how much did the Russian, did WikiLeaks matter, right? But if you think it, you know it happened, and if you think it mattered at all, and you think there's reasons for concern about someone like Roger Stone and whether he had connections to Julian Assange, whether he had connections to Russia directly, even a guy like that who is outside Trump's immediate orbit throughout the campaign, he's a pretty big player in the campaign, in this campaign conceivably. And you see in the Trump movie this moment where he's sitting across the table from Halperin and says, well, you know, what happens if one of Bill Clinton's rape victims shows up at one of the debates? He says this like a month before the first debate. And, you know, you see Mark react kind of like, well, you just throw it out there. You think that's that something you're saying is going to happen? And Stone says, well, well, it could happen. And then it happens. So we know Roger talks to Trump. Um, how much? No one really knows. We know he was his political Svengali for 25 years. Again, Donald Trump is Donald Trump, and he does pretty much what he wants most of the time. But those players around the edges at crucial moments in crucial ways, I think mattered to a pretty large degree. I mean, you want to, he was not, he, he was nobody's puppet. That's true. But those people had an important role to play. There's a scene in the final episode of The Circus that didn't make the cut for Trump. It takes place late on election night after Donald Trump has been declared victor. Heilman stands with Mark Halperin and Mark McKinnon outside Trump's celebration to diagnose what just happened. Their conversation is interrupted by a joyous Kellyanne Conway, Trump's campaign manager. Is there a parallel historically? No. I mean, people will try to make parallels. There's no parallels. There is no parallels. There really is. Stock market. Hi, guys. Hey. Congratulations. <laughs> she did it. Wow, yeah. Congratulations. Hi, Downing Thomas. Me and a million others. Do you know what Mark, you know Mark Halpern said this week? I'm sure you saw what that. What did he say? That you had a path to victory. We had six paths to victory. You took all six. <laughs> Were you with Mr. Trump when he got the news yes. that he won? Yes. What was his reaction? And he's incredibly humbled. You saw him tonight. These are his words, and that's the kind of president he'll be. That's the man who he is. Congratulations. All right, thank you. Sorry to photobomb. Oh, I love women. You photobomb us anytime. Kellyanne Conway bursts in uh, as you're doing the stand-up and, you know, clearly gleeful, uh, understandably gleeful, because her candidate has won. And you all say congratulations to her. I mean, it's a kind of moment of camaraderie uh, that you all have been together on this thing, doing different roles for several months. But it... That moment really stuck with me, and I, you know, I was like trying to decode it as because I, from everything else that I take away from your impressions of of this campaign, I don't feel like you think it's a great thing that Donald Trump is president now, and yet you're congratulating her for achieving that. Yeah, I mean, look, I I've been, you know, I was throughout the campaign and continue to be concerned about. Trump as whether he has the temperament, qualifications, and knowledge to be a successful president of the United States. I didn't make any bones about that in the course of the campaign. But the reality is that millions of Americans voted for the guy to be president. And he won, you know, he, he lost the popular vote. Important thing to note that he's a minority uh, president, but there have been other minority presidents. Bill Clinton won only 43% of the vote in 1992. But he won, you know, he won in the count that matters, which is the Electoral College. He's going to be president of the United States. And people like Kellyanne, and I'd say this is true on the Democratic side, the Republican side, you know, we are, I wouldn't say that the camaraderie is the wrong word. I think, you know, 
you inevitably in covering people, even when you, I have a hundred fights with Kellyanne Conway on television, you know, like aggressive, hostile <laughs> discussions, right? But the reality is I've known Kellyanne for 20 years and, and she's been someone I've talked to as a source, have covered in other campaigns that she's worked on. I've known her for a long time. And I think one of the things that's true in politics and is that you can be, you can fulfill your adversarial role as a journalist um, in the sense that you're holding powerful interests to account. You're trying to find out what's true, um, even if it's embarrassing for or damaging to the political candidate in question. You can do all that while still having a basic human connection with the people who work for them and understanding that they have poured their heart and soul out to try to win the election. And when they've won it to say, you know, congratulations, you know, you're, you know, I know this mattered a lot to you. You worked, you believe passionately in what you believe. You worked really hard and you deserve my genuine pat on the back for a job well done in the sense that this is an important professional and personal aspiration of yours in the same way that, you know, on the other side, despite the fact that I have the concerns I have about Trump, I'm really not a partisan in the sense that I've never voted in my life and I'm not on team D or team R, but in the same way, you know, uh, with the Clinton campaign, regardless of what you feel about them, you can still have a sense of sympathy for those people who poured their hearts into two years and have lost. Again, even if you think she shouldn't have been president, even if you think she's a crook, you can still look at her, the people who work for her and say, this was a crusade, a cause for them. They devoted huge numbers of hours and time and energy to this. And it must be a crushing blow to lose on election night and be able to say, hey, I'm really sorry, you know, I'm sorry it didn't work out for you. I think that's just basic humanity. And if we start to lose that, we're, we're in a bad place. I think, again, you can be appropriately adversarial and also human at the same time? <laughs> at least I hope so. I want to thank John Heilman for talking to me. You can watch Trumped Inside the Greatest Political Upset of All Time on Showtime. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, series producer, Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer, Kyle Murphy, Web designer, Cross Strategy. Marketing coordinator, Sarah Modo. Social media master, Jordan Smith. And executive producer, Rafael Anehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. If you're in New York, look for me on Tuesday nights at the IFC Center for our screening series, Stranger Than Fiction. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.